Welcome to Utopian Horizons. Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Utopian Horizons, a podcast about utopias real and imaginary. Something I want to get away very quickly before we get on to today's subject, someone very kindly left me a review on iTunes. Um, more of those please, if you've got a moment to give me a quick review, that would be a big help. But anyway, they specifically asked for a few guests that they would like to see on the podcast. I've been in touch with some of those people and it looks like Tom Moylan will be coming on. Um, so it's going to be a few months before that happens because of when he's got free time and stuff. But anyway, that's proof of what I said. If you've got a subject you'd like to see me cover or people you'd like to see me try and get on, tell me about it and I, I will try and do that. As always, um, email me utopianhorizonspod, tweet me at utopianhorizons and let me know. So anyway, um, on to today's episode. This episode will be covering a novel by H.G. Wells, probably best known for War of the Worlds, Invisible Man, stuff like that. But the novel that we'll be talking about is a specifically utopian work called A Modern Utopia. Joining me to talk about the book is Adam Roberts. He is an academic at Royal Holloway, but he's also a science fiction writer. Um, if you're not familiar with his with his work, uh, I'd really recommend you have a look at him. He's one of my favourite writers um, writing today. So he's written stuff like Jack Glass, New Model Army, By Light Alone, uh, Yellow Blue Tibia. I think his latest book is called The Thing Itself, though I've not actually had a chance to read that one yet. Um, he's got a new, another book coming out actually in a few weeks as well, which I've forgotten the name of. But regardless, the stuff I have read of his is fantastic, so I'd really recommend you uh, have a look at him. Um, it's hard to recommend like a starting point because all his books are quite different in terms of setting and style and stuff. But I mean, they're all good, so you can't really go wrong. I'll say Jack Glass. Have a look at Jack Glass if you've never read Adam Roberts before. But anyway, it's good to have someone who who knows science fiction as a as a writer and an academic to talk about H.G. Wells. And indeed, he knows H.G. Wells very well. He writes a blog on him, so great person to have on for this episode. I feel like there was something else I was planning to mention as well, but I can't remember, so it can't have been that important. Uh, maybe I'll tack it on the end if I remember. But yeah, so on to my conversation with Adam. Joining me now is Adam Roberts, a science fiction author and professor of literature at Royal Holloway University. Thanks very much, very much for joining me, Adam. It's, that, it's a pleasure. It's my pleasure to talk to you, Paul. Thank you. Um, so... We're going to be talking about uh, A Modern Utopia, a novel by H.G. Wells. To start us off, it might be helpful if you could just give us a vague kind of outline of the utopia that he's presenting in this novel and how we get there. Okay, so i say a few words about Wells and his career. His first novel, widely known as The Time Machine, that's 1895, and A Modern Utopia is 10 years later, 1905, and that's a decade in which he publishes a lot and establishes um, a reputation for himself, becomes a very famous writer. And towards the end of that decade, around the, the middle of the first de decade of the 20th century, he becomes really fascinated by utopia. He becomes a member of the Fabians, who are a socialist organisation affiliated with the Labour Party, and he began to plan realistically, as he saw it, ways to make a better world in which we could we could live. So the first inklings we get of him writing specifically utopian fiction is 
probably the first men in the moon, which is 1901, where some earthlings fly up to the moon using anti-gravity and they discover a harmonious lunar society run with the selenites, run on kind of insect-like models. So there's a grand lunar and then all the different selenites have different roles and they're all happy in their roles. Um, and then he wrote A Modern Utopia in 1905 and in 1906, the following year, he wrote another utopian novel called In the Days of the Comet, where the the Earth is in finds itself in the path of a giant strange comet. Its tail brushes over it, and some strange chemical in the tail of the comet alters the atmosphere of the Earth and makes everybody happy. And so we all stop competing against one another, and the second half of that novel is, is another utopian society. And the reason why I'm spelling all that out is because there are there are two models of utopia. There's a kind of top-down model and there's a bottom-up model. And mm-hmm. utopian writers generally have to pick one of those two. So the top-down model says human nature is kind of nasty, but if we impose the right structures and the right authority from above, we can make people behave well to one another and we can structure society so that everyone has an equal access to life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. And top-down utopias tend to be more authoritarian, they're often quite militaristic, they shade towards, I use the word advisedly, fascism. Bottom-up utopias are utopias that say, well, maybe human nature hitherto has not been um, very nice in the main, but it can change. Uh, It might change because circumstances change. Maybe if the world were better, all good people would grow up to be nicer. Maybe people could just change their nature. Uh, And that's what happens in in the days of the comet. A strange chemical comes from outer space and it alters the way people are with one another. And that means a, a society, perfect human society, kind of organically grows. So Wells is trying lots of different models. So to come back to your original question, a modern utopia is really a top-down, quite authoritarian, and I use the word again, slightly fascist utopia, where an elite, an elite group called the samurai of self-selecting individuals who are prepared to live this very disciplined, rather monkish life, enforce the rules that mean everyone in Wells's utopian society lives happily and in an ordered way. So my problems, I suppose, are that it is, it, 1905 is kind of early for this, but it's only a couple of decades before Mussolini and Hitler and Stalin are trying in the real world to impose their vision of what a utopian ordered society should be. And that's reading it now, I don't know, makes me ever so slightly uncomfortable. What did you think when you read it? Did you Yeah. Well yeah, no, I agree with you. I was gonna ask, is that not somewhat surprising given that he's coming out of a socialist tradition and he's um, so yeah, you know, reading for this, I was, I was reading about how he how he'd become involved in socialism and I think there's definitely Perhaps we'll get to them, but there's some specific ideas in the book that you can see have come from socialism. So it's kind of surprising that it's got such an authoritarian structure to it, I think. Yeah, and I, I mean, I, I don't want to sound like I'm having a go at Wells. Uh, I, I love Wells. I, he's a great writer. He's a very interesting figure. And he was very much a socialist. He devoted much of his time and energy and money to trying to advance a socialist cause. But I don't think he was ever much of a Democrat. I don't think he entirely trusted the ordinary man and woman to know what was and best he explicitly for says, does He explicitly says, doesn't he, in this book, I can't remember the exact phrase, but like democracy is not a 
it's not an adequate way of, of producing a, a perfect society where it won't work. So he, he explicitly says yeah, that democracy is not good enough, basically. And that's right. So his his own background is he comes from this slightly, what, what you would say is lower middle class background. And his, his dad was a slightly feckless character who tried to run a shop and made a, a hash of it and worked for a time as a professional cricketer, which sounds quite glamorous in the modern era, but was then very precarious financially. He was mostly raised by his mother, and his mother was a servant, quite a high-class servant, in a place called Ark Park, in this kind of Downton Abbey, below-stairs existence. And he was a self-made man, but his early years, um, as he worked very hard to establish himself, were characterised by his... He saw society from the bottom. He never had the the privilege to be able to take a a wide view. And what he saw, and he's very explicit about this in, in his utopian writing and in his autobiography, is society is a mess. It's, it's characterised by massive inefficiencies. And his idea, which comes through in this novel very clearly, is that society needs to be reorganised on more efficient lines. And that leads, as he goes through his life, towards a, a fixed idea that only a world state, a single unitary world state, where people who are in the know, experts and scientists who can determine what is the most efficient way to run society uh, should be given free reign to organise society on the most efficient line. And it starts to get a bit, makes your teeth itch a little bit. You start thinking, well, that is a kind of, I mean, that's, see, these ideas were picked up by fascist thinkers and theorists mm. in the 20s and 30s. Yeah, I'd like to perhaps return to the idea of efficiency at some point, because I think that's quite important. But um, the world state things, um, so that, yeah, to make clear, this is a this is a world state. He has, he says utopia has to be global. I think there's something in that, in the, se- in the sense that, you know, you have these ideas of, like, people retreating to, like, small communities to live in a certain way, but obviously only certain people can do that. So if other people can't experience it, to what extent is that really utopian? But this is, so this is set on Earth, but not on Earth. It's like an alternative Earth that a character and his companion get transported to. Do you have any sense as to why, like the normal thing would be to do set an utopia in the future or um you know could have done an alternative timeline but he's done this thing of a curious place that's like another place but not another place it's it is weird it's quite hard to get your head around actually it's sort of an alternate timeline isn't it because it's it's the same earth and it's the same year in 1905 and it's populated by the same human beings so everyone in our world has a an equivalent in this utopian earth, including the two characters who travel from our earth to the utopian earth. They have their equivalent characters. But it's supposed to be notionally set on the other side of the galaxy. Uh, it's a it's a weird little conceit. I mean, he what Wells is really doing, I think, is he feels there needs to be a contrast between the way the world is in order to throw his utopian ideas into the necessary relief. If he just wrote a mm. utopia, uh, we wouldn't have the, the points of reference to understand why what he was saying is better than the situation that we actually live in and that's quite common actually mm. that's not just him but one of the most influential utopian texts ever written i mean I, I say that not in the knowledge that not many people now have read it or indeed have even heard of it is a book called looking backward by edward bellamy which was published in 1888 and that is a story of a man who who falls into a kind of coma and wakes up a hundred years in the future in america and north america is a utopian state again run on a kind of top-down authoritarian model where the, the government assigns work to people according to their aptitude and lots of things they have in common. 
And Bellamy's book was really, really successful. And it was an international bestseller. A political party was founded in America called the National Party, which was there to try and make Bellamy's ideas come real. Lots of other utopias were written in reaction to Bellamy's utopia. William Morris's News from Nowhere was a, a criticism, if you like, of, of Bellamy's rather technological, mechanistic, militaristic utopia. And that's also one of the novels that Wells is aware of when he writes his version of Utopia. So instead of having a character fall asleep and wake up in a future, which he'd done in a previous novel, When the Sleeper Wakes, he just creates this alternate Earth. And the main, the, the narrator and the narrator's friend just sort of slip into this new world and explore it. And at the end, they kind of fall back into our world. And it's not quite explained how they travel. Does it bother you? Then? Does it, did, it, did it diminish the novel for you, that? Um... No, because so you, you mentioned like the those other utopian texts which he explicitly refers to in, in the book, and I was to, I was talking with the idea of suggesting that if this book was written a lot later, then people would have called it postmodern, and I wasn't sure whether to make that suggestion. <laughs> and I read your I read your Wells book oh, yeah. where you made a similar suggestion. So he's repeatedly referencing like, other texts and comparing what he's trying to do with the way they did it. So like intertextual, as they say. And, you know, he's talking about the strengths and weaknesses of utopian speculation. And there's this idea that what's happening is maybe part of the imagination of the narrator or maybe actually happening. But then I think it actually goes further and I think it highlights its own fictionality and like makes clear that it's it's a fictional piece of utopian speculation. So I, d- I don't know if you've got any thoughts of what he's trying to do there. It, like, it's, to me, it's kind of about utopian... It's about utopianism as much as it is a novel, if you see what I mean. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's kind of self-referential. But I think that's th- th- there could be several reasons why he decided to do it that way. And one might be, let's say, plausible deniability, so that he could say, well, it's just a thought experiment. You don't have to take it too seriously. But I don't think that's right. I think he genuinely, seriously thought the things that he spells out in this novel were practical and indeed achievable. So I think it's 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 self-referential in a slightly different way. I think it's about his own utopian imagination, and he's inviting us to make that leap. So he wants really to reforge the human attitudes to these things. He wants to create a kind of homo utopiensis. I mean, it's a Hollywood cliche, but he's taking us on a journey in a literal, but also in a kind of metaphorical sense. He's saying we have to make a you know to make a sort of leap. And the, the thing that interests me about it is the thing that separates this, that makes this different to any other utopian novel I know, is precisely the way the boundaries between our world and the utopian world are so porous, the way they just kind of slip from one to the other. Mm. There's a very famous, talking of postmodernism, there's a very famous Frederick Jameson essay called Of Islands and Trenches, which is about Thomas More's utopia and about other utopian novels in which Jameson says a utopia has to have a trench separating it from the world. It has to be on an island somewhere, the way that Thomas More's original utopia was. It has to be its own separate little space where you can run your, your perfect society. Because once you locate that utopia in the real world, it gets degraded and corroded by all the problems of the real world. So almost always utopian stories are set in an entirely other place or, in, as you say, in the far future. Or in some. Whereas this, this is kind of that, but at the same time it's kind of just 1905 Europe. Mm. slip from one to the other it's very it's a very strange novel it's a very unusual form um i thought that i felt that kind of 
flexibility or I don't know what you call it lack of solidity it was it's actually a, a strength as, as a kind of piece of utopian speculation so I like the fact so he's he's explicitly criticizing old utopias for not being able to change and like holding back development and his idea is that utopia has to be kinetic and open to change I think he does I don't know how good a job he, he does, but I think he's trying to... There's there's times where he's leaving stuff deliberately vague, as if to say... As if to acknowledge that he doesn't have the, the perfect answer. And he he presents things not as being solid. So, for example, there's... They talk, there's a section where they talk about the, the rules of being one of these ruling class people called samurai, which we'll, we'll get onto. But he makes clear that those rules have changed and that those they're still looking at how to make things better so he does a decent job i think of planting the idea that this utopia is flexible in some way he, he wants to do that i agree i mean I'm, I'm maybe i'm a little less persuaded by by how successful he's in that but you're right absolutely his vision is utopia is dynamic mm. and he's he doesn't want to get give the impression that it's an entirely conformist state where everyone has to march in lockstep otherwise it doesn't work so one of the first people, that the two main characters are the voice, who's the narrator, and his friend, who's a botanist. And they're on a walking holiday in Switzerland, and they just somehow slip into this utopian realm and they walk down the mountain and they find they're living in utopia and they stay in a utopian inn and they start to see how wonderful everything is and how cleverly everything's arranged. But one of the first people they meet is someone who doesn't agree with the utopian state, who thinks that um, mankind should return to a state of nature. And... The point of introducing that character early on is well saying, oh, it's not it's not impressive. If you want to disagree, then you're welcome to disagree. And if you if you refuse to live in this utopia, then you can go off and live on an island somewhere. And, but everyone else, I mean, the vast majority of people are happily collaborating in this very efficiently run utopian world. And I don't know how how much actual dissent yeah. Wills' utopias can tolerate. Mm. I don't, I don't think very much, but I think he's he's at least he's at least like aware of the problem of difference in utopia. Like it's always mm. been a problem in utopia. Like how do you deal with people who don't want to fit? Um, so you've you've mentioned that guy. There's also the the islands. He the islands they have in this society, which is kind of an attempt to deal with difference. And it's something that it's. I mean, Aldous Huxley picks this up in Brave New World, where he creates. It again in, in part of this larger dialogue about what utopia is he creates this satirical utopia where human nature has been changed by getting everyone addicted to these drugs and mm. filling their lives with these silly pleasures of television and sex and distraction and so on and that makes everybody pliable but the, the few people who refuse to live that life they have to go and live on weird little islands separated off it's a kind of inversion actually because the original utopia Thomas More's utopia was on a little island set away from the world and was basically guarded its independence from the rest of the world and this inverts that mm. yeah i should i should probably explain to for, for people who might not so he the the idea is in this world is if you don't, if you break the rules of the utopia in some way or don't want to live in it like if you're an alcoholic or uh, a serial gambler or whatever you get sent to an island of alcoholics for example yeah. and you're relatively free to do what you want within so you're the idea is it's kind of like a almost like a mini utopia of like you can live that way if you want, but yeah, it does sound like he's got it's his utopia is very 
he's trying to make something very clean and that every anything that's untidy has to be like expelled to these these little islands that's that's the problem isn't it because the the cleanness that's absolutely spot on he's fascinated with cleanness and he wants he portrays this world as a, a cleaner saner healthier more beautiful more noble more athletic society than our world which is full of seedy grubby balding pot bellied men like me drinking coffee in the morning and drinking wine in the evening and he, he wants to purge all that uncleanness but that uncleanness is really just another word for the diversity that makes up a society that can tolerate all different manner of descent he wants to brush all that away actually mm. and i think to go back to what we were saying about efficiency wells's model for society increasingly is the machine it's a very big and a very complicated machine but he thinks of society as this huge machinic piece of technology that needs proper social engineers to, to make it run properly and that's there's something about that that's quite horrible actually yeah, yeah he's, human. Got, he's got yeah this kind of obsession with efficiency which i think you see it in the way he talks about so this is a world that's got freedom of movement like you can go wherever you want but the way he talks about movement it serves the needs of the economy rather than the people. Like he's got the idea, this idea that oh, it's like everything can move everywhere, everything's super efficient. So if there's a place here that needs workers, then yeah. workers can. It was coerced. I don't think he thinks of it in that way, but you can ima- you imagine as they're being coerced there, so they're serving. So the, the people are serving the the need of the economy in the, in the name of efficiency as if that's inherently efficiency is inherently a good thing yeah the free movement of labor is quite apropos at the moment isn't it yeah I mean, it's, it's, I mean, idea. so the population has to move he says it has to be as fluid and tidal as the sea that he needs to be able to go wherever it goes but in order to make that work he also has this sense that he wants a, an enormous database of everybody hmm. that records everyone's movements no matter where they go uh, the record of their movement hither and thither he says and various material facts such as marriage, parentage, criminal convictions and the like would all be stored under their distinct formula or scientific name in this enormous... When he, the way he conceived it in 1905 is a huge repository of index cards, which is quite quaint and quite mm. sweet. But the principle behind it is really up to date, this idea that we have to surveil every member of our society. We have the technology now to do it in a way that's much much more supple than index cards. But the, the idea is there in Wells' original book i think mm. yeah it's very it's very interesting that that kind of that surveillance relates to the way uh, relates to today very much and that i think yeah that that vision of freedom of movement is kind of the one we've had like it's a freedom of movement that's about economy rather than you know some ethical decision about what people should be able to do um I want to talk there's, about... there's a bit i, I just uh, there's i've got i've got the novel here so this is from Late on in the book, actually, in which he just, Wells describes this surveillance system uh, from substations constantly engaged in checking thumb marks and numbers. A little army of attendants will be at work on this index day and night, births and deaths and arrivals at inns and applications to post offices for letters and tickets taken for long journeys and criminal convictions and marriages and applications for public doles and the like. A filter of offices would sort the stream and all day and all night forever a swarm of clerks would go to and fro, correcting the central register photographing copies of its entries for transmission to the subordinate local stations in response to their inquiries. So the inventory of the state would watch its every man and the wide world write its history as the fabric and destiny flowed on. So he wants to make this something grand, but it sounds like a scene from Terry Gilliam's 
Brazil. It sounds like yeah, a kind absolutely. of nightmarish vision of bureaucracy hyperstized to this extraordinary level. Yeah, this utopia is getting worse the more you talk about. I wanted to talk about um, uh, race because something that I didn't realise when I was, I was looking into this that, well, correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like e- eugenics had been tended to be supportive in the socialist movement and by Wells in, in the past. And there's an idea that perhaps he was rolling back on that a little bit here. That's kind of right. I mean, I want to tread carefully here because this really is the most contentious issue in Wells' scholarship. And it really does divide Wellsians. There's no doubt that there was a period when Wells supported eugenics. And if you read a book like, he wrote a book in 1901 called Anticipations, which is his vision of uh, how the future was likely to roll out and how he wanted it to roll out. And that's quite a racist book. He thinks that one of the things that needs to happen is inferior races need to be bred out of what we would nowadays call the gene pool. And by inferior races, he means blacks and Jews and mixed race people. And it's, it's, it's not the central plank of anticipations, but it's unmistakably there. So there's no question that he was a eugenicist as a young man. He he did change those views. And by the time, certainly by the time you get to the 1920s, he's quite a committed anti-racist. And he, he called Mussolini and, and later Hitler correctly as the kind of racist monsters that they were. So something does change. It's a question of how quickly he changed his views. So anticipation is in 1901. We're talking about this novel 1905. It's only a few years later. I think there are still traces of that I mean, it, it's it's part of his idea of efficiency and of cleanliness. And he does think racially because a lot of people of his generation did. One of the things that changed was that he went to America and he met Booker T. Washington. And actually, he, he talks about this in his autobiography. He also went to a brothel and had sex with a black woman and chatted with her about her experience. And having talked, especially having talked with Washington, he came back with a different understanding of what it meant to be black which before he wasn't he wasn't a very widely traveled man in his early youth because he didn't have the money he didn't encounter many black people or asians or, or jews so his ideas were kind of theoretical and he had the kind of imagination that was very facile when it came to extrapolating theoretical ideas and making them global and that's part of the problem of his early racism i i think in this book the in modern utopia there's still a sense i think that uh, his conception of the hygiene of the species is is racially configured. I think he loses that in towards the end of this decade. And I wouldn't want to give the impression that he's a died in the wool anti-Semite and racist all his life because he's really not. But he, there's no there's no escaping his ideas hmm. as a eugenist in the early years of this decade. I'm kind of sounding like I'm havering now, aren't I? Because it's a bit easier, <laughs> comfortable. Yeah, it's it's he's perhaps sort of halfway through that transition here because he's he's kind of talking about he's against he rejects the idea of like national myths and he's he's suggesting that if you see people as different from you, that's a product of culture. It's not mm. like inherent to who they are. But at the same time, he makes a distinction between artificial differences produced by culture and true racial differences. And he seems to think it would be remarkable. Like, he's got this idea that like anybody can rise to prominence in the society, but he does seem to think it's remarkable that it would be remarkable if more than a few white people were to were to do that. Yeah. Um, he also think he mistakes 
westernization with civilization that he's got this idea that well everyone will be reading western literature and they'll be behaving in a western way so then that will make them like civilized it's like that's what makes you uh, that's what makes civilization if you see what i mean in his, yeah. his view yeah perhaps we could talk about some of the like less horrible ideas because <laughs> there are some there are some nice ones there um i think that he's got some ideas that are quite relevant to to what we're dealing with today in that he's arguing for he's arguing that a lack of law and regulation does not equal more freedom which is something we're mm. dealing with with neoliberalism and its and its effects he's he criticizes this idea that economics is a natural law which I think we're also dealing yeah. with the effect of people treating economics as, as a natural law as well. And he and he is a socialist, and to go back to what I saying, he might be anti-democratic by modern standards, but he genuinely believed some core planks of early 20th century socialism, for instance, that wealth should all be held in common, the state should own everything. And he has this system in the modern utopia where people can lease land, let's say, from the state, and build their houses or their businesses or do whatever they want to do, they want to build a bridge across the British English Channel, they can do that, but they, they won't own it, but they can take the benefit from their labour, as it were. So no one, no one is obliged to work. If you don't want to work in Utopia, you don't have to. But if you do work, then you'll enjoy a finer quality of life than people who don't. And it's, it's trying to, I mean, it's not, again, it's not entirely original too well. It comes out of discussions that he was having with the other Fabians as to the proper balance between, on the one hand, full-on communism where no one owns anything and everything is held in common and the situation in which Wells had grown up, which was full-on plutocracy and capitalism where the state owned very little and it was all in private hands. He, he's trying to find a balance between the two, which I think is interesting. Mm. I mean, it's the, like you say, everything stands to be owned by the state and you get the impression that the way a lot of people would live in this world, it's, it tends to be in community housing. Yeah, uh, laid out in quadrangles and these places so you'd have your private rooms but then these places would have within them like childcare and schools and the, yeah the, the the idea i got was like individual houses do exist in this world if you accumulate the money and want to do that but it's kind of a community world so it's got a, a ubi in it universal basic income basic or his yeah. his kind of interpretation of it, which is very contemporary idea at the moment to stop people falling into poverty so everyone's got this minimum standard of being decently housed clothed fed and either there's stuff like you get money from the state if you want to we get coupons to pay for travel and accommodation if you want to like go somewhere else to work there or whatever so that's quite a nice idea yeah and he has this idea that money should be tied to reserves of energy rather than reserves of gold mm. and again i'm not entirely sure why that would be an advantage a gold is, is a scarce resort, and that makes that generates an economy of scarcity, which is a problem because there is enough wealth. I mean, he has a fundamentally Ruskinian nineteenth-century socialist understanding that wealth is life and labour; it's not resources. So, I think that's what he's trying to get at there. The manufacture of energy would be nationalised, uh, so heating and lighting and supply of power for both domestic and for industrial purposes would be managed from common generating stations, all owned by the world state. But that would somehow then also underwrite money. The payment wouldn't be, you have banknotes that would good for so many thousands of units of energy, and that's what you would spend. Mm. Did you yeah. get that? Do you see why that would be advantageous? Uh, I, <laughs> economy's not my strong point. But no, <laughs> I, no, I didn't really. I think as you, you suggested in your, your blog as well, that like 
linking it to energy where energy is more unstable in the sense that you could have like supply crises or like some kind of problem and that's not advantageous to to people the idea of gold is that the money stable as you said so um i don't particularly understand why changing what backs up money would make this a different world now he doesn't he doesn't actually really i don't know if he deals that much with the i with the problem of wealth in itself because i don't think does he i don't think he deals with inheritance does he well you you can't inherit anything oh you can't because the the state owns everything so you can't if you if you build a house when you die it reverts back to the state okay your your children can build a house if they want to and i think that's the character of the botanist is based on wells's friend graham wallace and it was during a an actual walking holiday in switzerland that wells and wallace went on together when they would stride over the mountains talking all this stuff out that was the germ for the novel wallace wrote a book called property under socialism which was the the source for lots of the specific ideas in this and that's one of wallace's ideas is that property is is not heritable um Mm. he's he's you can reserve certain things of small private what they used to call portable property can be yours and you can pass those on as kind of mementos to your children but large assemblages of capital as loose money or as houses or whatever that can't be allowed to be otherwise it just accumulates mm. I, I wanted to talk about the botanist actually briefly but but just briefly um another another quite modern thing the idea that he has in there is that he so there's this this idea there's a there's a debate going going on in some places on the left um about the work that tends to be done by by unpaid labor that tends to be done by women so like childcare yeah. and, and so on and he he actually does he recognizes that as labor that should be paid for which is a very modern idea though i think it, he's far from being progressive on with women in in this utopia no he, he can't quite get out of the what is a victorian mindset that women's work is separate to men's work that women's work is raising kids and sorting out families and cooking and cleaning and so on. And he think you're right. He thinks that is work. It's, it shouldn't just invisibly happen in the background. It should be part of the structure of labour in society and women should be rewarded for doing it and so on. But it's not it's not modern feminist idea, no. really. So. Because they're, they're basically, he seems to think they would not always, but would be primarily confined to that sphere of work because they they can't compete with men basically in other in other spheres of work the idea yeah so and with the with the botanist so it's an interesting one so the botanist is kind of fulfills the role of an annoyance to the narrator so he's he's his obsession is with uh women that he was he was in love with um in the real world and didn't work out and he's pining for this lost love and his his pining for it constantly that interrupts the narrator's utopian speculation like this, this personal thing he's constantly complaining about it um do you have any insight as to what he's doing there with this idea that like this personal thing is yeah interrupting yeah it go, it does go back to to what we we're saying earlier about the weird the unusual i should say form that this utopia takes where it is 1905 earth but a utopian version of it and everyone has their equivalent because it, it starts to f- generate a kind of story it's not much of a story in this novel most of the novel is just laying out all the elements of the utopian world but when the botanist realizes that everyone has their equivalent on this realm he becomes fascinated and obsessed with the idea that he can go and discover this woman mary he go back and find the the utopian version of mary maybe it'll work out with her so he goes back to 
utopian version of England and encounters this woman and discovers that she's in utopia. She's married to the man that she'd left him for in the real world. Mm. And he's, he's so heartbroken by this that it shatters the dream and it drags both him and the narrator, the voice, back into our mundane world. Mm. Uh, he says scars of the past and he can't get past this, this heartache, this psychological trauma that he'd suffered. And then the next thing they're in, they're in our London. Um, looking at the poor, shriveled, dirt-lined um, streets of around Trafalgar Square. And that's it. You're, they've been bounced out of Utopia and they've come back. So there's something there about, about emotional pain being something that Utopian society can't solve, I suppose. Mm. And it's all bound up with... I mean, the, the Wells was famously uh, sexually promiscuous, um, but he became famous. And I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing to me because he was... And I say this, I know I'm no George Clooney myself, but he was short uh, he had a high-pitched squeaky voice he had never good physique he had this lower middle class accent he was not physically strong he'd been quite ill in his life and yet women seemed to fall over themselves to go to bed with him he had this wife that he would return to when she was clearly if not complacent with this certainly long suffering with it and had a series of very passionate long-term affairs including with the daughters of some of the key fabians one of the reasons why he eventually left the Fabian Society right. tolerate him anymore. <laughs> so he's one of the things that his utopian imaginary includes is a kind of erotic paradise where in not just in this book but in all his utopian books, if you want to have sex with lots of people, then you can do that. And that's balanced against the idea that we have to be very careful about children we have. So that's very fiercely regulated in utopias and not just any old person breathing. You want the best people breathing to produce these strong, noble samurai types. But if you want to have love affairs, then you can have love affairs. And when he was off walking with Graham Wallace, who was the, the prototype for the botanist, Wells would try to seduce women that he met, Swiss girls and women that they met in the hotels they stayed at. And Wallace was very shocked by this and rebuked him repeatedly. So I think in, one of the things that's happening is it's Wells kind of turning the tail on Wallace's prudishness as he saw it. Mm. So it, what Wells wants is a world where you can have all the great sex you want without all these horrible, complicating emotional anguish that goes along with it in the traditional model. And that's what the botanists can't let go of. Mm. I mean, I think it's a, it's, a, it's a false dream. And I think it, it didn't work out for Wells very well either in the long term. But I think it's one of the things that's happening. Yeah. Okay. Well, we should probably um, get on to talk a bit about the samurai because they're obviously very important. So we've mentioned that there's this voluntary nobility which are called the samurai. The idea is that they live kind of, I don't know if you go so far as to describe it as puritanical, but they're not allowed to drink. They have to be very strict in what they eat. You have to buy and read at least a book a month. Um, yeah. You're not allowed to Imagine. walk, you're not allowed to play or watch games. You're not allowed um, to play cricket. That's one of the little details that stuck in my head. Yeah. I mean, he's, so, he, has a, he has a reason for that. He's not just a random dislike of cricket because his dad was a professional cricketer. He says the, the samurai have to represent the best. They have to be the best of the best. And everyone has to look up to them and accept that they are the best. And it's impossible for a samurai to be the best at cricket. The only way a samurai could be the best at cricket would be by constantly practicing and playing cricket. And that would distract him mm. from his, his duties as a samurai, as it were. Mm. I mean, this is this is really the the attempts that he makes for his utopia to be dynamic and open to change. This is really where it that kind of is contradicted, right? Because so the idea is that anyone could be a samurai. Um, you just you have to pass an exam. 
which you can take at any time. But it's, you could very easily imagine that this would become an effectively hereditary class. I think even it says that, that they tend to be, samurai tend to be people who, uh, whose parents were samurai. Mm. And it's, it's as if Wells doesn't, it just doesn't occur to him that, I mean, it's an old adage that power corrupts and that people who have power want more power. But that doesn't seem to occur to him. So the things you need to be a samurai he says you need, it's open to every physically and mentally healthy adult who will observe its prescribed austere rule of living. So he also says we reject men who that you must be in sound health, he says, and free from certain foul, avoidable and demoralizing diseases. <laughs> you have to be in good training. We reject men who are fat or thin and flabby uh, who, or whose nerves are shaky and you, you're not allowed alcohol or cigarettes you have to go every year, you have to go for a trek in the wilderness on your own. You're not allowed to lend or borrow money. You're not allowed to sell things. You can't be an actor or a singer because it's undignified, according to Wells. Mm. You, have to, you have to have cold showers. The samurai must bathe in cold water. The men must shave every day. And if there were just a, a, an ounce of irony or humour or self-awareness in any of this it could be really funny but it's not he does this with a completely straight face yeah that he really thinks that this this is how you create this ideal cast and that people might say well i'm happy to give up alcohol and cigarettes and endure the cold showers because it puts me in this position of supreme power and power is its own reward does that does not that's not part of the equation mm. And it's so you, you you go up for like a trial every three years to see if you continue, but the people who are deciding whether you continue are samurai. Yeah. And uh, as he says predictably, they tend to just keep going. So you, <laughs> you, can, you can see. Uh, I think there's a really strong current of like social Darwinism in this in this book. Like the kind mm. of person that he seems to venerate, like this, you know, the idea of like a great men civilized and wise and cultured and disciplined and these people that rise above the the average person and deserve their position in society it seems not so different from the kind of person that someone like Anne Rand might might venerate do you know what I mean like it seems like his society in a way is a place that creates is creating the conditions for social darwinism to operate at its best yeah and i I think at this stage in his career wells would not have considered that to be a criticism i think i I don't think he wouldn't have used the phrase social darwinism but that's basically what eugenics is it's saying we have to use breeding to breed out the people we don't approve of and to enhance these qualities that we think are the right qualities that is kind of socially darwinistic i mean in his he's quite explicit about this in the book and elsewhere that this is based on Plato's Republic, this kind of this classic work of the Greek fifth century BC philosophy, which imagines a perfect society as Plato imagined it, and that that Republic was under the care of a, a caste of people Plato called the Guardians, and Wells's Samurai are just a kind of modern version of Plato's Guardians, and that I think is where the you could argue that's the route back down to, to Plato. Karl Popper, in his famous book The Open Society and Its Enemies thesis of that book is basically all of fascism and nazism and stalinist ideas in russia all that blighted the 20th century intellectually it can be traced back to plato and the, the ideas that plato has in his republic this idea that you you get people who think they know what's best for everybody and can organize society on the most efficient and ideal grounds and that one just has to do what they say and fall into line I mean, do, you, do you know if he was like 
particularly elitist or Wells as a as a person. Yeah, I, it's hard to call him elitist. I mean, he was the thing that the thing that I find puzzling about this this particular book is it is so po faced. He takes it all so very very seriously, and I think he did genuinely believe it, and I think he thought it was an achievable aim uh, in his lifetime or in the generations to come. Elsewhere, Wells is a really funny guy. He's a genuinely brilliant comic writer. Some of his comic novels are laugh aloud funny. And if you read accounts of him as a human being, he was charming and he was witty and he had a wide variety of friends uh, and he was often very funny. And you, you read his experiments in autobiography, it's full of kind of hilarity. He loved to play games. He wasn't a snob in any way. He would happily play with, with kids. He would play with chat with servants. He says he learned more. I mentioned this before when he went to America. He says he learned more about what it meant to be a Negro, as he calls it in America, from this woman in a brothel that he slept with and chatting with her than he did talking with the president himself. And he was he moved in all those circles very easily. And that's partly because he was from the, the background he was from. He has a, a kind of social mobility built into who he is. Elitist doesn't describe him very well, but he at the same time, he did have this authoritarian streak, or at least his imagination did. He couldn't see any way to solve the problems in society except by seizing hold of society as a whole and reconstructing it, whether people like that or not. Hmm. What, what about this idea of like science and technology as like an inevitable force for good? I don't know this era particularly well, so I don't know if that's like a feature of thinking in that age. Like, I mean, people do... You do get that idea sometimes today, this idea that like technology is going to save us but I, I don't know i feel like people are a bit more skeptical of it now and there's you know high tech is often a feature of dystopias um so is that sort of a feature of the age this idea that science and technology would inevitably deliver us to a better world it's it's quite a complicated issue certainly with wells he is aware of both sides of that argument so he's okay. famous of course as a science fiction writer so he imagines the future and extrapolates the present and quite often that involves what you were saying earlier about his model for society is that it has to be dynamic. So the technologies that really excite him are technologies of movement and transport. As you said, the world of the modern utopia is one where you can travel all over the world all the time. That's technology at the service of kinetic energy and dynamism of this world. By the same token, in, a, in three years' time, he's going to write The War in the Air, which comes out in 1908, which he imagines heavier-than-air aircraft on a mass scale. And that's a, that's a kind of anti-utopia because what happens is the German Air Force makes war on the American Air Force and this is a spoiler, but what the hell? Hmm. It destroys the world. The whole world gets smashed up. And the machines are so efficient at making war that it crashes the delicate machinery of finance and production and the novel ends in barbarism where people are living in the ruin. So he's aware that it, the technology is dangerous. And this is also, you know, this is one thing that was happening in this decade was the war that started in 1914. It wasn't, it didn't come out of the blue. People were speculating about it right through from the 1880s and 1890s that the rise of this great German power would inevitably lead to a European war. And he's kind of thinking utopian thoughts in part to avoid that possibility, to do away with the, the belligerence and the, the reasons why nations go to war. That's why he wants a world state. That's why he wants everything held in common. That's why he wants to free up people so that they're not constrained by borders and they can go everywhere and all those sorts of things. You're thinking it's machinic in, a, in, a, in one sense, 
but it's not fixated on specific machine. Okay, that's interesting. Okay, um, f- final question. Um, if you're kind of evaluating this book as a piece of utopian literature, I mean, what what do you see as its strengths and its weaknesses? Uh, its strengths are that it is very detailed and it's very thought-provoking, stimulating, and it does, you read it, and, and inevitably you, you test its various little ideas and predictions against your sense of what would work and what wouldn't and what came to pass and what didn't mm. and it's a very stimulating book it's very interesting varied and there are bits of it that are very he, he was very he was a very accomplished writer there are bits of it that are beautifully written and that are evocative and that give you that sense of just how wonderful it can be to walk into a completely new town and yeah. find out how it all works and so on but i think that the real problem with this and with other utopian experiments in prose that wells undertook was that he can't allow irony in. He can't allow humour, so it, it is very stony-faced and puritanical, and this it becomes almost a cliche, doesn't it, of left-wing socialist thought? This idea that lefties are all sandal-wearing, lentil-eating, cold shower, yeah, loonies. Yeah. What did you think of it then? Um, I liked the book. Um, as I say, I thought I, I was really, I was quite surprised to the extent that some of the ideas, how contemporary some of the ideas felt in it, which um, I wasn't expecting. Because like, this is not, an, as I said before, this is not an era of, I'm familiar with. I tend to post Second World War science fiction is kind of my my area, so I haven't haven't read much right. of this, this early stuff. But um, yeah, really, the way social Darwinism threaded through it is kind of not particularly pleasant i think um and it emerged and i think this idea this obsession with efficiency is really interesting at something i think we still have today like this idea that efficiency is inherently good and we talked in a previous episode about this idea that we're moving towards smart cities that will be Uh everything will be managed by by being connected through the internet of things and everything will work perfectly and the idea that that will necessarily create a better world for people is really problematic i think when you think about who will have access to these expensive technologies that will do great things for us and who will be locked out of that kind of thing but yeah have you ever considered that writing a, a utopia i think it's very hard to do i think the another thing that's quite interesting about this period is that there there was utopian writing comes in in waves and there was a real vogue for it from the 1880s, 1890s. I mentioned Bellamy's Looking Backwards, which was, I mean, it, I can't stress how big a, a hit that book was, how influential that was in its day, and how many utopians were, were then written in the, uh, as reactions to Bellamy's ideas. And this, 1905, is kind of coming to the end of that little vogue. It became harder to write straight utopia, I think. And then the First World War came along, and that put an end to that kind of little mode. So what happens after the First World War is you get more ironic, more satirical interrogations of the idea. We talked about Brave New World. Mm. I, mean, I, I know lots of people teach students who would quite like to live in Brave New World and have all set <laughs> the drugs they wanted and watch television and all that. But it's, 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 really, it's not meant genuinely in the way that no. Wells' book is. And latterly, we're in this strange inverted state. And this is an argument that Frederick Jameson makes as well, whereas everything seems to be dystopia now. We're fascinated by dystopia. Yeah. So Jameson says that's because that's the that's how the utopian impulse is working itself out in our culture. That dystopia is a kind of photographic negative of utopias. That they're still they still index our yearning towards a better world. They just do it by identifying specific problems that we need to overcome and dramatizing those. Hmm. And that I mean I've written some dystopias. I think it would be quite hard to write a straight faced, non ironic utopia in the present age. 
What do you mm. think I should give it a go? Yeah, why not? I, I, <laughs> I'd expect that I kind of wonder whether we're going to see some in a few years because I feel like there's a utopian out. I feel like there's a utopian moment in politics in the sense that the the consensus that we've had for like a few decades is is breaking down and mm. there's a sense if you look at something like um Corbyn in in this, in, uh, in the UK people were starting to believe in the idea of the possibility of change and the idea that there's there's alternatives I wonder if in a few years that might manifest in utopian literature. I don't know. Maybe I wonder. Not. I mean, I, I do think that there's a, a book like Looking Backwards is a future-oriented book. Bellamy's Utopia is saying this is what we need to do to make utopia come in, into being in the future. Whereas I wonder if the utopian moment we're talking about now is a bit nostalgic, actually, and rather backward-looking. Corbyn's an old-school 1970s socialist, and it's a, it's surprised a lot of people how how many voters have flocked to that vision. Or in his own in his own ghastly way, Trump came to power by tapping a utopian urge in a lot of American voters. Absolutely. Was to make America great again, to go back to the time when America was great mm. in the nineteen fifties when we had Jim Crow laws, the women stayed in the home and all these terrible things. But that's that's a kind of urge that we've gone too far somehow. To me, Corbyn and Trump are like a symptom of the same thing, which is a desire right. for um, a desire for an alternative and a rejection of what we've had for thirty years. So I know Corbyn's an old school, old school guy in many ways, but to me, he represents the people that support him represent a desire for something new. And even though Trump is obviously horrendous, and but as you say, he's 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 to me what won him support is the idea that he represented change to people, and whether he actually does in reality is a. Uh, another thing and if it does change what kind of horrible change that might mean but that's where his support came from um, and we're in a moment where anybody who represents continuity and the status quo will be rejected by the electorate so well, I see yeah. I see hope in that yeah no and I'm, I'm, I don't want to sound like a, a wet but I'm just not sure that I'm not sure the choices are between continuity and the status quo because I think things have just been moving so quickly I think the choices are between what may or may not be a spurious appeal to older values that say we can go back to how things used to be or a continuing acceleration of what we call neoliberalism and to make a last point about wells's novel here there is something surprisingly neoliberal in his conception of his world state so for instance one of the tenets of neoliberalism is that labor has to be absolutely free to move wherever the market requires it to go we have to open all the borders and things like Trump and Brexit and so on are a lot of people saying, no, we don't want that because that's mm. striking down wages. And, and, and Wales, I think, would say, no, you have to open the borders and you have to make everything as fluid and, and kinetic as, as possible. And that's a very neoliberal ideal. Yeah. But people are digging their heels in, I think. You're right. And, and don't necessarily like all those consequences. But that's not the status quo. That's this kind of increasing pace of Change. Well, I'm, I'm hoping people will be able to eventually make the argument for open borders, but for a different reason, but right. probably some way away from that, I suspect, yeah. but you never know. Um, anyway, thank you very much for your time. Um, it's a pleasure. It's been wonderful chatting. Yeah, I think uh, if people, I would highly recommend that people um, take a look at some of your novels. They're some of the best science fiction novels I've read in recent years, legitimately. Oh, so if people want to have a look at that. Stop, like, stop. <laughs> if people have a look at that, so I guess, should they uh, check out your website? Yeah. AdamRoberts.com? AdamRoberts.com is my website. And if you're interested in, in Wells, I'm doing 
a, and it sounds like I'm plugging myself, I'm not, I get no money for this, there's no benefit to me whether you check this website out or not, but I'm, I'm writing a biography, of literary biography of Wells, before I've been so immersed in Wells. I've got a Wells blog called Wells at the World's End, which I'm going through all his novels in order, in which I talk about his utopias amongst other things. Cool. Okay, well, thanks very much, Adam. No, oh, pleasure. And that's the end of my conversation with Adam. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you did enjoy the episode, it'd be great if you could subscribe to the podcast, give it a rating or review. That stuff does really help with um, spreading the word. Tell someone you know about the podcast. Um, if you've got money and you feel that giving me a little tip would be would be worth your while, then I've got a Patreon going at patreon.com slash utopianhorizons. I'm not going to go into a long thing on why I do the Patreon. I don't think people want to listen to that every week. Maybe next week I'll beg a bit more again. Um, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, you've got any ideas or stuff you'd like to see me cover, or if you've just got any feedback on stuff, then email me on utopianhorizonspod at gmail.com. Tweet me at utopianhorizons. All being well, I've got some really cool stuff coming up, including an episode on a movie with a robot cop in it, a rather famous novel with hackers in it, a political movement which I suppose you'd call a revolutionary one and a political movement that's very much ongoing at the moment as well as various other bits and pieces I'm starting to work on so keep an eye out for that please take a moment if you can to share subscribe um, follow the podcast on Twitter any little thing you can do like that to help me with the podcast that would be massively appreciated anyway I hope you've enjoyed it and see you on the next episode (laughs) 